You ever get burnout? Sure. You do. And what yes. do you do when you get burnout? I've always worked very hard, and this is not something that can be done without a supportive uh, spouse and a husband and supportive parents. And they were there for me, my parents specifically, when I had very young children. It's important actually to have young grandparents for the kids, right? Exactly. So that they can help out. Exactly. And, it's uh, more than just babysitting. They become a force in the kid's yes. life, right? Yes. It's like my, my mother says, your kids are... Uh, Bringing up themselves. <laughs> when I became uh, the, the the regulator of the of the electricity authority, the energy authority, uh, the whole household was committed. They all said, "Mommy is doing something very important, and we all need to support her." When I went back to politics, uh, there were very mixed feelings. My children opposed it uh, firmly. They thought I'm doing a big mistake uh, because they they thought it's bad for my health and bed for my peace of mind and for my quality of life. And my husband was the one who pushed me uh, to try and, uh, you know, have impact on the political level. I've been a minister for the last three years. And uh, there has been some uh, period when I was truly exhausted because in Israel, we experienced five elections, six waves of COVID, and all of that in three years. And this is, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. You cannot do it without being uh, in love with what you do. Hi, I'm Orit Fargash. I'm the former uh, Minister of uh, Innovation and Technology and Science of the State of Israel. And at the moment, I'm a parliament member uh, in the Knesset. My core value is to make an impact through hard work. Orit, thank you for being here. I'm particularly excited to welcome member of Knesset, Orit Farkasha-Cohen, on Olive's Invested Podcast. Orit is the former Minister of Innovation, Technology, and Space for the State of Israel and former Minister for Tourism and Strategic Affairs, notably during the coronavirus, being the head in Ministry of Tourism during the coronavirus. That's quite a role. She previously served as the first female chair of Israel's Electric Authority. She has also been instrumental, fundamental, in Israel's offshore gas exploration and commercialization and has worked tirelessly to advance tech diplomacy efforts between Israel and the United States, the EU, as well as the Arab world and other countries. Orit holds an LLB from Hebrew University, an MPA from Harvard University. She's married and has four children and lives in Jerusalem. Orit, we're so happy to have you on the show with us. Let's get started. Sure. How do we know each other? I got to know you through uh, my last position as a Minister of Innovation. And then I uh, was uh, amazed to uh, realize that we're, I don't know, like uh, nearly neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> we were living in the same neighborhood, I think, or area in Jerusalem. And I never met you. You're working hard. I'm working hard. And, uh, you know, in every ministry, uh, I meet some people who are leaders of the industry and I'm starting to consult with them. And I can say that you were a very good uh, counselor in many issues or crossroads that I had. Uh, I needed somebody to ask question and learn from. That's kind of you because I have to also admit that the Eitan <laughs> uh, Eliram, who we're both friendly with, because he also lives in the neighborhood, uh, introduced us. And the first time I came to the meeting with you, you were running late. And I got annoyed. And I said, this is, can't be worth it. And I started to leave. And you came running after me. And I have to say, I'm glad I did not run out of that office because 
the friendship that's developed and the relationship and the work that you've done has been inspiring. And I'm glad I didn't leave that meeting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. No, again. no, it's okay. It was my, you know, it was my impatience. So I'm glad I didn't leave. Okay. I want to, I want to dig in on something, uh, starting not at the beginning, uh, with you. I want to start with something I know you worked on towards the end of your term as uh, minister of innovation, which is artificial intelligence. Uh, you were partner and party to, uh, I think the meeting was in Paris, if I'm correct, a meeting with the European Union on the role of artificial intelligence and AI in society. Can you tell us about that meeting and what your intention was and the other ministers who were in the room from around the world? Uh, the purpose of the visit to, the, to France was actually a, that Israel would become a member of the GPA organization. And uh, I had a meaningful meeting with the minister, the French minister there, and uh, the OECD representatives there. Uh, in order for Israel to be uh, admitted to this organization, which we, which we did, uh, actually there has been a little bit of uh, a, a political and uh, international inconvenience with regards to this uh, visit, because it was, uh, um, I would say it was uh, previous to that were the events of the NSO the actions of NSO, the story of NSO, the Israeli company with a... This is one of the offensive cyber companies in Israel that uh, the U.S. government at some point in Facebook uh, became annoyed with, let's just say. And it actually shed a light on that visit because uh, until last minute, I didn't even know if the visit would happen, if, if I would be able to meet the Minister of Science because the French uh, uh, government had a lot of reservation of letting me as a representative of the high technology and innovation in Israel to meet there, uh, to meet that ministry. But at the end, we worked hard so that the meeting will take place. And Israel was admitted to GPA. And uh, we started progressing uh, the policy and uh, first uh, ever ethic uh, regulation on behalf of the Israeli gov government on AI. Well, why is it important for the government to be involved in AI ethics. Isn't that the role of like university professors, ethicists, religious leaders, and entrepreneurs themselves? I don't think we should leave that uh, to all those uh, factors without any governmental interference, because I think that uh, as a government, we have an interest. First of all, we want to protect the industry and we want to support the industry. And AI, AI is now, uh, you know, it's like the engine that changed uh, the whole technolo technology world. But at the same time, we are committed to certain values, such as privacy, such as uh, not to abuse this uh, technology, such as uh, how to make it in a, in, a, in a way that will not discriminate other people's, uh, other uh, uh, in decision-making processes, and this is what is something that many countries are now dealing with, the uh, United States versus the European community versus uh, Canada. And we had to take a stand on that matter because Israel is the startup nation or the scale-up nation or whatever, uh, is being ranked uh, in those areas and it, may, it was ranked poorly because the government did not uh, took a stand on these uh, ethic and, uh, and uh, principles. And uh, that is why it was very important for me to, to go out and to publish these principles. And I also wanted to make a stand of a moderate position, which is called uh, a Hachanut Achra'it, 
which means responsible innovation. Responsible innovation that on one hand protects the industry and says that we are committed to, to, to uh, only international uh, standards, but at the same time talking about you know uh, privacy concerns and uh, uh, being accountable and being transparent and so on and so on. And also talking about the fact that at, the, at this stage, the state of Israel does not believe in uh, creating a specific AI legislation. Okay, that's an important point. I'm glad you finished with that. So in the conversations we had before you went off uh, to, to Paris, I, I asked you the following question. I said, should Israel be a follower and a joiner of what uh, the EU or the United States is doing uh, within the regulatory framework and the ethical framework for artificial intelligence, or should we be a leader, uh, as the case may be? Uh, what do you think of that now? Should we just be a joiner and just kind of subscribe to international standards, or do we need to have our own unique and perhaps lead, leading voice or a leadership, voice of leadership on this topic? That's a very good question, because I think that this is indeed an international uh, uh, topic, and this is not uh, something that Israel can lead on its own without any other partners. And that is why, first of all, I thought that the fact that Israel is a state is not even a player in that area is a, is a big problem and a, and a blind spot. Uh, having said that, I do think that we should follow international standards, but we should be in the room to voice uh, our concerns with it when it comes to uh, certain concerns of the state of Israel. And we do have certain concerns when maybe when it comes to security issues with AI involvements, and then I think we should be in the room, and I think that we should lead that. And when we're uh, representing, I don't know, AI issues are uh, relevant to every aspect of life, also to security issues, to uh, political issues, to self-defense issues. And I think that in those areas, with regards to uh, the state of Israel's, you know, right of, ex of existence, self-defense, international interest, I think that we should and we can be a leading voice because on that area, unfortunately, we have a lot of experience. <laughs> Is it only like a, a, a national issue, meaning our defense, our rights, our responsibilities, or do you think there's something unique about Israeli culture or perspective, uh, not just because of the experience, obviously, we've had on defense issues, uh, but because of how you think about life or society that you think we have perhaps a unique opinion on? I think that when it comes to Israelis, uh, I think that we are less sensitive to privacy rights and other rights uh, because we are so used to being a very disciplined, uh, um, maybe, I don't know, disciplined people. Uh, most of us uh, go to the army mandatory. Uh, we are facing a lot of uh, situations in which, uh, you know, we need to protect ourselves. And sometimes, and we saw, we saw that also on the COVID, the COVID also uh, confronted the value, for example, of privacy versus the uh, national concerns. And I think that in that sense, maybe, maybe uh, the Israeli people is more vulnerable to uh, breaches of privacy as they see themselves part of a bigger you know, like a people that we have all these national uh, security concerns that they are, I think that they are more lean to be flexible on some issues. And I think that on, on that level, maybe a role of a minister of innovation, you know, I only started the phase of this, uh, of this regulation that, uh, for example, 
a minister of innovation should be the one who raises that voice of uh, privacy and individual protection issues that uh, rises from the use of AI. Yeah, I think this is an important point, which is, in other words, Israel is a high trust society and therefore people let their guard down as it relates to privacy. But people playing by other rules who don't observe the trust in Israeli society uh, could abuse the individual rights of people. And I guess the question then becomes, you just said right now that it's the job of the Minister of Innovation uh, to, to get after that problem. One could make the argument that uh, there's, it's not the role of government uh, to do that, but rather it's the role of the technology companies to do that. And then you have a different problem, which is we can't control the technology companies in the world, so what do you do? Is this actually solvable through the Minister of Innovation raising the concern by coming to international agreements, or but because not everyone in the world is going to be bound by the international agreements. It's, it's just not solvable. Actually, it's a very good point. And I think that the whole thing of AI versus regulation, it's like mixing water with oil. You know, I come from the low-tech infrastructure world. When regulation or policy government is very uh, defined, and when we're talking about AI, it is so, uh, it's still developing. The pace is very uh, quick. And that is why, for example, we said there is no place for specific legislation. I do not believe in AI legislation. And for your question, I think that there should be a combination of accountabilities by the technology uh, companies and also a partnership with governments. And that is why we chose uh, what we called a soft regulation, a, let's say responsible innovation, just only pinpointing the compass, what we think. You know, companies should be accountable, they should be transparent when they use uh, AI, they should be uh, able to explain decisions that were taken by AI mechanism, and so on and so on. And to give all these tools for technology companies to be able to use in order to assess the, the risks that involved in AI. But I think that your question is, uh, is, is right on. I don't know if we will be able to control it. I don't know if the technology companies can even address the changes that AI brings to the industry. What do you think? I think it's a tough one. I, I actually admire you for going the soft regulation approach. I think the natural tendency in politics today is to go hard regulation on, on a lot of technology. And I think kind of guidance and soft regulation is exactly the right way to go. Uh, but I think it's tricky. Uh, and I don't think you can, re you can really regulate this to the point where you can kind of solve it. Uh, my own personal view is that we need to invest in values conversations, which are not perfect either, obviously, but to try to get people to assume more responsibility and understand the lines between good and bad actors. Uh, I think the tricky thing to your position, which is, which is in government, is – and this is, you know, this is a conversation about investing in values and technology – is what do you do – you're a minister in government, for argument's sake, and – there's a bad actor in another country or another country is a bad actor in the case of AI. Do you like abstain from having relationships with them? Do you, do you kind of, right, how do you handle places where technology policy and abuse is run amok, right? And we can have that. The more AI proliferates and particularly over time into the battlefield, it's, it's going to be very complicated for how you deal with these kind of bi and multilateral relations with these countries. But, but, 
Would you abstain from having relationships with a country on a values basis of how they use technology or, or, or let it run? Actually, you know, it's not a theoretical uh, question. You started from an issue of AI. But, uh, for example, as a minister, we uh, launched a mutual task force between the two governments, the United States and Israel, that has that started the deliberation on that issue exactly. Uh, there's a working group on trusted technologies because the American administration had some reservation about uh, the Israeli policy of uh, protecting our technologies because uh, on one hand we're a source of amazing technologies uh, to the whole world, uh, but on the American administration uh, aspect, we need to be more controlling of the use and the, uh, and the export of these technologies. So this uh, issue is not limited only to the AI area. And uh, when we are looking at what's happening now in the world in the area of uh, China, Iran, uh, Turkey, uh, Ukraine, Russia, then things are very vulnerable and, and, and uh, fragile. And uh, we cannot avoid the question of what should be the policy on trusted technologies. And that is why we started that dialogue, uh, because on one hand, we as a country are very committed to not limiting our industry the Israeli technology industry. And I'm talking about, of course, the, the civil side and so on. Uh, but I think you are absolutely right. I don't think that in the long run we will be able to ignore uh, partners who are, uh, you know, who are misusing technology as a policy. I'm not talking about an accident yeah. that one company breached something and there was a mistake or, uh, or maybe a, a something wrong. But I'm talking as a policy. You know, you, you mentioned the collaboration with the United States. Is it fair to say that trust and shared values matters more today because of proliferation of technology than ever before? That's a very good observation. And I think that the question uh, uh, roughly is yes. But you know that Israel is a very complicated state in a very controversial and tough neighborhood. Never noticed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we have uh, so many issues, you know. For example, when you're looking at Russia and Ukraine, uh, I mean, we're so happy that we have our own uh, energy resources and so on. We're going to talk about that yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Israel is a country that can rely basically and should rely on itself. And this is what is our ethos. Uh, so in that sense, I think that having said that I'm agree that I agree with what you say, we will always have we will always have this you know little dot saying everything is subject to our existential challenges, and I and I hope I'm I'm clear about it. Yeah, no, that's actually super helpful. Have you already mentioned the energy part? I'm gonna I'm gonna segue for a bit. Uh, many people don't know this. Uh, but Orit Farkash Akoin, Minister Orit Farkash Akoin, when she was a civil servant in government, is very responsible together with the government for getting gas out of the ocean, out of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and into Israel and Israel's energy independence. Uh, so much so that when you were the regulator of this, you at some point had to have security detail uh, around you because there's a lot of economic interests uh, involved and they were worried about you. <laughs> Take me through for a second, and I know you wrote about this in your kind of time in Harvard uh, as well. Uh, take me through uh, the process of getting the natural gas and the digs in the Mediterranean into Israeli homes from your perspective. 
So first of all, I want to be uh, modest about it, and I think that the achievement is of the uh, of the owners and the uh, entrepreneurs and the business people who jeopardize their money and time to uh, drill and to bring gas to to Israel. A hundred percent. Yes, and I, mean, I was you know, only. Yitzhak Tshuva and the money that he risked and others is is it would not have happened without private entrepreneurship. That's exactly for sure. and yeah. their vision and their belief. And, uh, you know, I, I must be modest in this because I was only the electricity regulator. And my part was to create a supportive business environment for those gas reservoirs to be able to sell uh, their gas to IEC, meaning uh, IE, the Israeli monopoly. IEC is the Israel Electric Corporation, exactly which is the local monopoly. To the, to the IPP, to the private players, to have regulation to put in place so that they will be able to transport uh, the gas into the uh, into the land of Israel and uh, and others. And I also had a, a very complex relationship with them because although we worked very hard for that success to happen, and I think that Israel's having its own gas reservoirs is a major, major strategic success. Uh, both uh, domestically, but uh, nevertheless also on the strategic side uh, with a relationship with Egypt, with uh, Jordan, Jordan, and yeah. we'll talk about it uh, later. But I had a very complex relationship with them because I also went into some uh, conflicts with them. I argued about the details of the gas contract with the prices that they sold the gas to the Israeli consumers. But uh, uh, I really, really admired what they do. And this is something that is totally an amazing achievement uh, that they have uh, enabled the state of Israel. I think that when I'm looking today, first of all, I think that it is an amazing thing that Israel has a diverse source of energy, natural gas resources, solar resources, and that they, we are totally uh, energetic uh, Dependent. Independent. 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 Yeah. I think that the fact that we can export gas to either Egypt today and also to Jordan is a major strategic uh, tool to mm -hmm. the state of Israel. And the fact that we have Israeli representatives from our gas company sitting, for example, I think only last week or a few days ago, there was a big international conference in Egypt uh, with the Shell representatives and other majors and, you know, and Israeli representatives. This is totally uh, not less than an amazing thing. And uh, I think that what we're lacking... You know, the, the land flowing with milk and honey needed a miracle to find gas and then, exactly. and then bring it on us. So. But I think that what we need uh, uh, to improve is the implementation of uh, to bring the gas into the industrial sector in Israel. In that, we are truly lacking... Uh, for years, we're talking about it. Why are we lacking? Because of bureaucracy, because of the fact that uh, the Israeli uh, governmental uh, companies that are supposed to build the pipelines and the infrastructure and the connections between the Israeli, you know, different industry and to transfer them into using gas is just is, is delaying. Uh, the reform that was done in that aspect is not as successful as we thought. And there are major efforts that the government is doing in the last few years there with regards to that. So we're living in an inflationary environment. Now, Israel's inflation rate is better than the U.S. and certainly better than, I think, the EU at this point. A lot of that has to do with energy independence. Is that fair? Uh, yes, I would say that. Some of it. And you mentioned the strategic benefits of the energy independence before and the and the regional agreements to bring energy 
uh, to our neighboring countries. Uh, we bring water to Jordan. We bring now gas and energy. When you're having the conversations uh, in the room about the impact on the economy, right? And uh, you're having the conversations on on energy independence. And a lot of these are kind of uh, um, heated conversations, I'm certain, because we're measuring financial models at the end of the day. And at the same time, you're mentioning the strategic importance, the energy independence. What takes precedence in these conversations? Because you could be willing to give up some shekels in order to get energy independence. So what leads the conversation? Is it the money? that the government can make? Is it the money that the entrepreneurs can make? Or is it kind of the core values of the state at that time? This is actually a great question because I think that the whole issue of energy in Israel basically raises to the surface a conflict. When we're having governmental discussions about energy policy in Israel, there will always be the voice of the money and there will always be the voice of the strategic benefits And you know, when I was holding the position of the electricity regulator, I was voicing the voice of the money, of the pockets of the Israeli citizens that I didn't want them to overpay for the gas. But when the, but now that I changed sides and I went into the government as, as a minister, when you're taking a, minis a ministerial decision or a cabinet decision, You are uh, balancing all the considerations. You can ask the same question about the last agreement that we had done with Lebanon with regards to the uh, border, uh, the territory of the border uh, regarding the dispute on the, on, the, on the gas reservoirs between Israel and uh, Lebanon. Everybody could argue that it wasn't the best uh, uh, decision take in account uh, only the financial uh, risks and uh, the fact that uh, uh, we gave up some of the dis disputed areas and Lebanon uh, got something else. But on the other hand, when it comes to uh, gas, we are always thinking um, about geopolitical consequences and about the stability and what it uh, gives Israel as a state. And the same thing was here when uh, the development of these reservoirs uh, was uh, jeopardized or uh, postponed. We all as a government, including myself as a regulator, put aside a lot of our uh, fiscal concerns about maybe the money and the prices. And uh, we all sat together. We said, first of all, we're going to give them certainty. We want these reservoirs uh, to be drilled. And once we have uh, the gas out of the water, then we can start and uh, discuss the fiscal issues and so on because uh, the energetic security issue for the state of Israel is, uh, is acoutic. And we saw that in the Arab Spring in 2012, when there was a revolution in uh, Egypt, a citizen uh, uprising, if you remember. The first thing that was hit was Israel's uh, gas supply by the Egyptians. We were in a very big crisis for a year and a half. The state of Israel did not get gas supply. We were, you know, we were in a, like an emergency state. First of all, the minister's reference before to the Lebanese border dispute is that there was a somewhat of a border dispute of a border that ran either to the right or the left of a new natural gas find uh, and basically decided in uh, Solomonic terms to split the baby in some way and also bring in a foreign energy company, Total, uh, from France. That's the previous reference. I'm impressed, Michael. Listen, I'm trying to do my work as best, <laughs> as, 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 as best I can. And, and the agreement was done uh, 
I wouldn't say hastily, but it was done uh, with very uh, energetic American uh, negotiation by, by Amos Hochstein, uh, who also grew up in the neighborhood, by the way, we should say, and uh, who was President Biden's uh, representative to this. I- I'm very curious about something you kind of said in passing before. What you basically said is you paraphrased uh, Ariel Sharon's famous line, things you see from here, you don't see from there. And you said, when I was the regulator, what I was focused on was making sure that the Israeli consumer got low energy prices. No, fair energy fair prices. Fair energy prices, yeah. right. Fair energy prices, you're right. Fair energy prices. But when I became a minister, I needed to be concerned with other considerations. So you, you switch sides of the table on some level or you switch positions and your perspective had to change. Was that difficult? I mean, you, you invested your heart and soul for years as a regulator. No, I, 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 I'll... I'll I'll rephrase what I said, although I agree with what you said. I still think that my position as an electricity regulator was the right one because I do think that uh, with a gas deal, anyways, it's a different story, should have uh, balanced the interest in such a way that uh, it should have taken care of a better indexation formula for the Israeli consumers. Because at the time we were facing a gas monopoly and that was a very complicated situation to be as a state. But uh, I think that uh, uh, being a minister, you do see a a broader perspective. What I didn't change is nothing in my perspective didn't change the fact that whenever I took a decision as a minister or in the government, it was still very, very important for me, and until this very day, to hear the professionals, to hear the experts, the administration people, because I think that they know best. They are the people on the details, they know the details, it is their profession, and I truly believe in hearing uh, a lot of professional opinions before you take a decision, because it improves the process of decision-making. But at the end of the day, sure, Uh, Yeah, sure. Take, for example, the uh, climate issue. Israel uh, cannot afford to be 100% solar, for example. I mean, at that stage, I mean, at at this stage uh, specifically, because we have other considerations uh, because of our security threats. We need to have diverse resources of energy and so on and so on. Israel is not connected. It's an energetic island. We're not, we don't have a backup from Europe or from our neighbors. We're totally isolated in this uh, sense. Yeah, if what happened to Ukraine happened to us or Germany, if what happened to Germany just now happened to us, there'd be nobody filling our tanks with natural gas. And so we need that. Exactly. Diversity. You know, one of the things I find funny when you say that right now is when I was a kid and I came to visit Israel for the first time, the thing that absolutely struck me were these panels on people's roofs with the, with the little white kind of towels, towers or containers on top of everyone's roof where they made hot water out of solar energy. I'd never seen, I grew up in New York in Manhattan. I'd never ever in my life seen a solar panel until I came to Israel. And so Israel in my mind was wowed ahead of sol- on solar energy. And you fast forward now 40 years later from the first time I came to Israel. Uh, and we're still very advanced in solar energy, but there's actually no way we can take that revolution that early, I don't know if it was a revolution then, it was a necessity back then, the kind of solar-powered uh, hot water. Um, we can't take it to the extreme because we need uh, varied sources of energy. H- how do you think of our place in like the world of what they call renewables or solar and wind? And there's obviously wind turbines in the Golan Heights. Does, does that actually even matter to us? 
Actually, it's a very interesting question because when it comes to climate challenges, uh, when I was a minister of innovation, I went back to the energy area, which I come from, from a different perspective. We passed a very big uh, cabinet resolution that was pushed forward by the Prime Minister Naftali Bennett at the time. And uh, it was written, I, I led the cabinet resolution. It was a joint resolution of how Israel will harness the high-tech industry in order to address the climate uh, change uh, in the world. And I think that Israel can have an amazing uh, added value and to take a leadership position in the areas of climate. If we're talking about the meat industry, if we're talking about uh, the food aspects, if we're talking about renewable energy storage technologies and so on, this is an uh, opportunity for Israel to excel and to widen its industry and to be a world leader, not only in cyber and other uh, areas. And we really put very strict uh, targets and uh, aiming so that the Israeli high-tech industry will develop and become a world leader in those aspects. Uh, what, what, I'm going to stop you for a second because I, I want to know why should we care? Like, we're this little country. Um, like I mentioned before, solar energy was here very early compared to the rest of the world. But we have solar farms in the south. They're, well, I don't know what they produce. A few percentage points of Israel's energy needs. Uh, we're never kind of going to be clean. Gas is much cleaner than coal, obviously, and, and other things. So in that way, we're a lot better. But like, what, what, why should we care about this as a country? Uh, I think that we should all care about having the world a better place. And uh, we as Israel, we are a state that we see ourselves as a state that should, you know, also uh, be an example of a modern and, uh, and uh, an amazing country. I think it has to do with the understanding that we do need to be a player in that challenge. I think that the only problem that we have is that we need to keep our diverse resources because of our existential problems. That's a hedge. That's Exa a hedge. Exactly. But yeah. when we're talking about the government policy, it is absolutely there. The compass is going to uh, more and more and more renewable energies. Now, the problem is that we don't have hydro. We don't have a lot of, you know, uh, offshore winds. Uh, we don't, uh, we, we cannot really focus on things that are other than uh, solar. And I think that in that, those areas, our added value is to totally the technology. And we can be, you know, why do we send uh, our military people to Turkey when we had an earthquake? Why do we help other countries in Africa with our physicians? Because I think that part of our ethos is to, 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 to do the tikkun olam and to be part of uh, the problems and to be part of the solution. So I want to tie your answer together with something you said before and then ask a hard question. So, so you said before, of course, we had to be part of this AI convention and we should bring our own unique perspective to it because we have a unique perspective here uh, on the ethos and we have our own unique challenges uh, on them. You said we need to commit to the climate change proposals, not because tiny Israel would, would matter, but it's a message that we have to be part of the world and make the world a better place, what you called uh, tikkun olam, um, and do our part either with technology uh, uh, or, you know, with our with our own small renewable energy. And obviously, getting the gas out of the ground is a big deal uh, in terms of uh, in terms of climate change. Uh, climate change. And uh, when you were minister, and, and and you tied it together, interestingly, with sending the relief mission to Turkey now to get people out of the rubble. We've sent relief missions to Haiti and to Miami, and then you tied it together sending doctors to Africa. 
And this is, this is already a worldview. It's a philosophy at this point, which is uh, not just about national security. It's about national influence and doing national influence through what you would say, doing the right thing in the family of, uh, of nations. And where does that come from? Like, I, I don't think most people say, okay, we have to send a relief mission to Turkey because it's important for us to have a positive influence in the family of nations and doctors. And this is going on all the time, right? This, this amazing unit led by Golan Voch, right? That goes and takes people out of rubble in Surfside in Florida and in Haiti and, and in Turkey now has been all over the world. And so this is now a philosophy. Where does it come from? Maybe it comes from the core and the DNA of the birth of this country and what the, we as a people went through. Uh, you know, the idea, first of all, for me personally, to be a public uh, servant is to do the right thing and to have a positive impact on us and on other countries. Uh, I think that Israel is a kind of a miracle, such an amazing uh, small country. People do not realize how small geographically we are. I mean, when most of people that we know do not know that. And, but we have an amazing abilities in terms of technology and developments. And we see ourselves as a country that wants to help other people that are in distress. Uh, you know, again, uh, we are not apologizing for uh, having a Jewish state. And we are very firm in our standing here in the Holy Land as a national house of the Jewish people. But uh, sure. Building on that, we want to help. And I think maybe it has to do with the Jewish DNA of, of doing good and uh, of assisting. Of, and I think it's also uh, human values. I mean, uh, I don't think it's, I mean, I never ask myself that question. I must, That's what I'm here for is to ask these questions. I must tell you, you know, it's like a, for like a innovation diplomacy. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to push forward and we started, we launched a, a work together with, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is to map these deprived countries and how we as the state of Israel can go over and improve their quality of life through our technology. That's and, amazing, uh, by the way. Yeah. So the, it started, but I don't know, you know, the government changed. So uh, we, t we tend to do that a lot here, right? It's changed, it's changed the government. But that's amazing. You worked with the foreign ministry and actually mapping countries and then mapping technologies against those countries where we could help out those countries. We launched uh, uh, like a task force for them to prepare a, a plan. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing, actually. Yes. And so I want to take that observation and go to another area you worked on, which is computational and synthetic biology, uh, which I know the work started uh, under you. And... Uh, uh, as you know, we just brought on an entrepreneur in residence here to Aleph, whose name is Dan Davidi, who we brought back from the United States. He had been at Harvard Medical School, where he set up the Synthetic Biology Lab, and then worked at Amazon in San Diego, and he landed back here a month ago. Uh, you know, in some level, in response to your efforts and, and efforts I was working on separately uh, around computational synthetic biology. Take me through where the previous philosophy we talked about, which is we need to have our impact on the world and do it in a responsible way, meets synthetic biology, computational biology, and where Israel should play there. Again, I think this is, uh, this is uh, one of the areas that me as a minister, we defined it as a national uh, technological uh, priority area uh, that should be uh, pushed forward uh, in the sense that this is the next step of, I think, everything of, uh, of, of medicine, of progressed uh, solutions 
to uh, uh, the human uh, uh, problems. And again, I think it's part of the vision of Tikkun Olam. And... Uh, <laughs> And you want to, okay, I want to switch topics entirely right now. I want to talk a little bit about what we did on the social gaps. I'm coming to, that's exactly where I'm coming to right now. Yes. So, uh, I'm going to start with a different question to, to head in there. You work very hard. I've seen you at all hours of the day, working very hard uh, and doing meetings. And uh, you said that was a core value of yours, work hard to have, to have impact. Uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, she stepped down because of burnout. She said, and you have four children to the best of my knowledge. But do you ever get burnout? Sure. You do. And what yes. do you do when you get burnout? Actually, I was so, uh, I was really, uh, I really wanted to watch that uh, announcement of uh, that prime minister woman. I, I wanted to listen to her and I was really uh, passionate about finding her uh, resignation announcement. And I could relate to many things that she has done. I've always worked very hard, and this is not something that can be done without a supportive uh, spouse and a husband and supportive parents. And they were there for me, my parents specifically, when I had very young children. Uh, you cannot do it without being uh, in love with what you do and committed to It's important to actually that. to have young grandparents for the kids, right? Exactly. So that they can help out. Exactly, because yeah. my, my brother, who's a physician, got married very late, and he missed that opportunity to have grandparents that are a very present for the, I mean, can babysit. And, <laughs> it's more uh, than just babysitting. They become a force in the kid's yes, life, right? Yes. It's like my, my mother says, your kids are uh, bringing up themselves. <laughs> there are a few uh, advantages and disadvantages, but I must tell you that the last, uh, I've been a minister for the last three years, and uh, there has been some uh, period when I was truly exhausted because in Israel we experienced five elections, six waves of COVID, and all of that in three years. And this is, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. There was, uh, the government was a uh, big cha chaotic events that flooded the whole world. I mean, the waves of COVID, the vaccination, there was a COVID uh, cabinet in the, in the government that was 24-7 uh, on the go. And, uh, you know, being the Minister of Tourism, uh, one of the most uh, industries that suffered the most, the, the tourism industry almost collapsed in the times of, uh, of, of the COVID. Uh, it is our luck that Israel is not uh, very dependent on tourism. It has the high-tech industry and it has other industries and we came out in the last, you were talking about inflation. It is not only the gas that uh, made us uh, being relatively with a low rates of inflation and interest. It is mostly because we went out of the COVID as a very strong economy with a very good performance and uh, taxes and incomes and the growth and so on. Uh, so, yes, so there, is a, there, there, there is a burnout. But, you know, your kids went through this insanity with you, right? And thank God there's Shabbat in the middle where you can kind of take a half a breath. It's a lifesaver. Shabbat's a lifesaver. The Sabbath is a lifesaver. Was this hard for your kids? And I know they're teenagers already. Even more. I have a 25-year-old. A 25-year-old. And a, a, a girl in the army. Uh, I think that they went through a process. Uh, when I became uh, the, the, the regulator of the, of the electricity authority, the energy authority, uh, the whole household was committed. They all said, 
mommy is doing something very important and we all need to support her. When I went back to politics, uh, there were very mixed feelings. My children opposed it uh, firmly. They thought I'm doing a big mistake uh, because they, they thought it's bad for my health and bad for my peace of mind and for my quality of life. And my husband was the one who pushed me uh, to try and, uh, you know, have impact on the political level. And I must tell you that as a regulator, my conclusion was that if you want to really make an impact, you should be on the political level. And uh, now I feel like uh, as I become more a public figure, they are, on a, they are having the opposite effect. I don't think they tell anyone what I do. <laughs> they don't tell what they are. They hate it when I, they don't talk about politics. Uh, but they follow uh, very closely what's happening. So, so I want to finish this part of the conversation. I apologize for them. Yeah, kids should make their own decisions, and, and we hope to be supportive of, of their parents' choices. But sometimes they're not. And, yeah, but uh, but I think and, they're having a quite uh, interesting experiences. For for example, a few weeks ago, my uh, oldest son came just to take the car. You know, so he came to pick up the car. And he went inside the kitchen to take the keys. And then he sees uh, on my uh, dinner table, Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot. He said, oh, oh, I, I just came to Those pick up the car keys. Hi, hi, nice meeting you. So, you know, they have their own experiences. And I think it's not too bad. Those are two former uh, chiefs of general staff in Israel and now current politicians in the Blue and White Party that uh, Orit Farkasha Cohen is part of. I want to go on to what I believe is actually your signature moment in, in, in politics, at least in my view because I think it really brings together the, the, the values and, and uh, the importance of how we think about the future. So you commissioned uh, Dottie Perlmutter, the former CEO of uh, Intel Israel, uh, to work on diversity in tech in the workplace. Diversity is a bit of a loaded word these days, but this is really what I would call socioeconomic diversity uh, in tech in Israel. Tell us about that decision, what you did and what you learned uh, in the process. So Israel is actually in a, was in a turning point when it comes to the high-tech industry. The high-tech Israeli industry went through a huge leap in the last three, four years, I would say. But still only about 350,000 of the nine and a half million people in this country work in the tech ecosystem in total. Yeah, but yeah. It, it also depends how you count, and we will talk about that as well. But when I came to the ministry, uh, I knew what every Israeli knows uh, I was uh, that it also uh, it also reflects a very big social gap in the state of Israel. I remember the moment when the token fell. It was a uh, token one, fell is the nickel dropped. Exactly the nickel dropped. When the nickel sorry, dropped. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. So one of the one of the employees in the ministry just uh, presented a slide, uh, and the slide showed the uh, what are the odds of a seventeen year old boy from each city in the state of Israel to become a technology person or to, be, uh, to go into the high-tech industry. And that graph or that uh, diagram told the whole story. And you could see that the high-tech industry in Israel is all located in Tel Aviv and certain areas. And the dots that were outside of the, of the whole thing 
were people, Israelis from the ultra-Orthodox society, uh, women uh, were at the bottom of the list, uh, underrepresented. You could see Israeli from the periphery of Israel, and that is indeed a, a big problem. And when I saw that problem, I decided to uh, create a strategic process uh, on behalf of the government, and I appointed Dedi Perlmutter, the former fi vice president of Intel, uh, the international uh, inter Intel company, and I appointed him to be at the head of a task force that for the first time in the state of Israel put around one table all the stakeholders that are relevant to the issues of how do we create a more inclusive in, 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 in industry in the state of Israel. So the task force was uh, representative, represented by uh, the Ministry of Finance people, people from our, my ministry, the Ministry of Innovation, uh, people from the Innovation Authority, also my ministry, people from uh, Israel Bank Research Department, people from the Ministry of Education, people from Mafat. How do you say the Mafat is the National Defense Technology uh, arm of the uh, Ministry of Defense? Exactly, because the Army and the Defense Ministry is also relevant because so much of our of our high tech industry stems from our technological uh, advanced uh, abilities in the yeah. military. In the military. And we had all these people sitting around the table, and you would not believe it, Michael. For the first time, they sat together with Vatat also, the Higher Education Committee Council, and private sector representatives. And they all came up with a plan, how until 2030, what should be the Israeli policy in order to bring in more women, more Israeli from the periphery, more Arab uh, uh, into this uh, industry, and uh, more ultra-Orthodox. And we, they came up with a plan. And we turned all of that into a cabinet resolution that was also uh, harnessing like six uh, ministries. And we set targets, which I also set to the innovation authorities. Critically important. You said actually numerical quantitative targets. Yeah. yeah. It was basically to reduce, I mean, roughly speaking, wouldn't go really into the exact numbers on every segment, but it was roughly to decrease by 50% these uh, gaps by doing all kind of activities uh, starting as early of as the school elementary school and one of the highlights of that uh, which is something that i'm very proud of is that we launched a program called high tech class that i uh, launched together with the minister of education ifacha shabiton that already started last uh, year uh, Fast the, implementation for the, government. Yeah, very. When I brought the general director to my ministry, I told her, this is your first priority project. This is what I want you to deal with. And uh, it worked. And we started a plan in which by five years from now, every Israeli child, no matter where he lives, no matter where he's in the periphery or in Tel Aviv, will uh, learn uh, high-tech skills and will be uh, will be uh, exposed to this world and to the uh, wide elements of uh, of relevancy to every to agriculture climate uh, medical because technology is everywhere this is the future it's it's already here it's not even the future and to I start think this, this is an important point which is it's not like high-tech code software it's how high-tech also meets or technology and coding and software meets Different industries, agriculture or different areas, agriculture, health, energy, software. Telecommunication, everything. 
You can be a child. And an, I, what I think is that they're lacking the understanding. And we started already with a, a pilot in, the, in a, a few hundred uh, eighth grades. And then the K uh, children, a few thousands of them. A few thousand kindergarten children. Yes. And when I uh, came, to, and we started in the periphery, and the program is- Where? The, in, the, in the south or the north? Uh, both. In both the south both. and the north. South, the north, in Arab uh, villages, for example, in a city like Ashdod, which is not uh, such a, you know, extreme periphery. It's the fourth largest city in Israel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I must tell you something. But low social mobility. I came to visit- uh, kids, uh, eighth graders in Ashdod after two weeks of having that program. And when I came into the school in Ashdod where I grew up, uh, I asked the teachers, what, what do the kids say? What is the feedback that you're getting on this high-tech class program? Which I want, I want to tell you again, it will be mandatory, not an extra curriculum. Uh, so the teacher told me that one of the students, one of the, of, the, of the boys told them, how come we study in Ashdod Hightech? Isn't it something for people from, uh, kids from Tel Aviv and kids from, and that is exactly the purpose of the program. It was to uh, make every kid in Israel believe that this is relevant for him. And also to touch on the girls that we know that very early in age, they are getting drifting away from these areas and, what, do you, uh, what, do, what, do, what do you think? I just hope they will keep on this program. You and me both. What, what do you think about, it is about you that drove you to do this? What is it about Orit that drove you to do this? That made me do that? Yeah. I think that the fact that I- I mean, when I first met you, that you, you already started talking about it, right? So you were on this. So what was it about Orit? I think that the fact that I come from a very strong professional background, uh, shaped a lot of my, let's say, political figure. Because when we're talking about what I did, the climate cabinet, the, the climate uh, process, the, uh, the AI uh, regulation, the, uh, the, uh, the education program, I, I looked at it, I, I mapped the strategic blind spots that we have and uh, launched things that are long-term. But why do you care? It's amazing, no, to, to, to... I agree it's amazing, but why you? Like, there have been 10 people in this job beforehand, 20 people in this job beforehand. Nobody did it. Why did you do it? This is why I do it. I mean, why, uh, why, uh, why other than that? I mean, why would be the reason to go to politics? I don't see any reason to suffer the loss of privacy. Uh, uh, you know, all the risks that are... Uh, that you take when you go into this uh, swamp that is called uh, politics, all the compromises that you have to do. I think the only benefit is to make a good impact on your country and your, and your, uh, and I mean, not that, everyone does that, it. You, like, you, that you is did my it. engine. Should I, should I ask your parents? I mean, who should I ask to find out why it was Orit who did this? I mean, 10 people had this job. 15 this people had this job. Nobody yes. focused on this. Yes. And I can tell you something that is very personal. I feel that in politics, there is not a reward to being a committed to being very professionally effective and to do these long-term things. Most of the ministers, they come, they want quick wins. They are telling themselves, in a year, I'm not here because it takes a while to build infrastructure. And um, I don't look at it this way. And I think that if we had more people that either come from the private sector, Michael, I'm inviting you. 
Thanks. No, thank you. Don't, don't do me any favors. <laughs> thank you. I think that uh, we could uh, have a big impact. And by the way, this educational program uh, made me very emotional. When I came to the school in Ashdod, I, I, I was like pinching myself. I said, I can't believe it's happening. I can't believe it's happening. And this is something that you can do truthfully only by being a minister and pushing forward such big processes. I'm glad you did it. All right. This is our rapid round of questions to finish up. Uh, what's the biggest, what's the problem in the world that you most want to fix? In the world? It could be in Israel too. So ask me about Israel. Okay. What's the problem in Israel you most want to fix? Uh, the polarization of our society. Do you think, by the way, that's inevitable because of the internet and AI or is it something else or politics today? No, I think that it, uh, we as the leadership are taking a lot of the blame uh, by not being able to uh, set a better example. That's amazing. I'll tell you a personal story. My daughter, Tamar, my oldest daughter, sent a letter to Tsipi Chotobeli when she was a young, she's now Israel's ambassador to the UK and she was a young member of Knesset. My daughter saw fighting in the Knesset one day, people yelling at each other and screaming. And she was, I think, a high schooler, my daughter. And she said, how do you expect kids to act if this is the way the leaders act? And Sipi Chotobeli read the letter from the floor of the Knesset, Israel's parliament. And so that resonates uh, a lot. We have, of course, the problems of AI and, and the social platforms, but it cannot, it cannot be an excuse, I think. What makes you human and vulnerable? Caring. And what about what was caring mean? What about caring? I take everything to the heart. I'm like a soul player. Yeah. So whenever I want to push something forward, I really, I put all my energy in that, and it's actually very exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Probably exhaust some other people too. So, how do you want to be remembered at the end of your life? As a good person. As a good person. And when somebody writes the bi biography of Orit Farkas Shakoin in 100 years, what's the title going to be? Oh, I would say full of energy. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when I started my uh, career, there was a big profile uh, uh, article about me. And the title was Chashmalit uh, Ushma Orit. Yeah, Chashmalit Ushma Orit means... Uh, it's like the uh, film. Uh, 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 like electrifying, and her name is Orit. I, I don't know what the film is. It's a paraphrase on a film, no? I don't know which film it is. I don't watch movies. <laughs> yeah, full of energy. That's actually a good description. Yeah. Orit, thank you for coming. I know you need to get back to your busy day and busy week and very busy life. So thank you for coming. Thank you to your husband for pushing you into politics. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll have a Shabbat meal in the neighborhood uh, with the kids. And so... If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find Orit Farkashakoin on Twitter at F-A-R-K-A-S-H-O-R-I-T, Farkash Orit, where she tweets mostly in Hebrew, but Twitter has a translation function. She's also active on LinkedIn and Facebook. Orit, thank you for joining us today. It was fantastic having you. Thank you, Michael. And thank, thank you, you for your service to My our people. My first podcast, I think. Amazing.